Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. We are back in Jude, looking at verses 14 through 16. Uh, the controversial thing about these verses is the quotes from uh, the book of Enoch, and we'll talk about what that means and, and how to handle it, not that I'll have all the right answers, but at least to get you kind of heading down a direction. Uh, what's interesting about this is I'm going to read through up till these verses, but so far Jude has covered what we'd say four sections of Scripture, verse 5 through 7, and then he gives a comment or an application to his 55 A.D., if that's when he's writing, uh, an application to the people he's dealing with, the false teachers in the church. Then he gives another Old Testament, or another example of text, and then uses that in verse 10. Another example in verse 11 explains it. And here we're going to follow up on verse 13, where it ended about the stars, like they're like shooting stars, the false teachers are like shooting stars that go across the sky and then just disappear into darkness. That verse 13 is going to lead into the judgment that's going to lead into the judgment or the darkness uh, when the Lord comes to judge. But then this is going to be followed up in verse 16 with an explanation. So verse 14 and 15 is going to be that quote from Enoch, the book of Enoch. I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. We'll look at it. And then he's going to make application. It makes a lot of sense when we look at it. He'll make the application. But notice as we go through there, when we read through this, verse 5 through 7, he'll refer to the Old Testament I mean, this is really, in a sense, genius. It's a short book. It looks like it's just like a little short text mix. It doesn't have much time, but it's really well thought out. He uses a text, an Old Testament example, and says, that's what we're dealing with. Use an example, that's what we're dealing with. Use an example, and here it is right here. So here I go. We're going to just start in the NIV. The English Standard Version is in the notes. Um, chapter, well, here it is, chapter 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now here's the issue. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Again, that's a very important. That drives this whole book, to contend for the faith. It, it's a struggle. It's a fight. You can't just passively, like, well, it's just not working out. You've got to fight for this. If you don't fight for it, talking in 55 AD, making application to us, if you don't fight for it, there's going to be nothing to hand to the next generation. It's going to be consumed by the false teachers, twisted, perverted, and, 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 and the message is gone. We've lost the word of God. Of course, that's impossible, but theoretically, a culture, a family, an individual can have the word wiped out of their life. Uh, think about a, a, an individual or a, a family or a particular culture, an entire nation. You can have the Word of God snuffed out, sometimes because of judgment. Of course, the Word of God is always going to continue. It abides forever. But that's what he's dealing with. We've got to contend for the faith. That was once for all. I mean, it's not going to come back a second time. There's not more. This is it. Entrusted to the saints. Entrust me. It's our responsibility to preserve it for the next generation and, and many other things. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. And again, this is an amazing point right here. We're not talking about Hollywood. We're not talking about the media. We're not talking about, you know, some corrupt Canaanite culture. We're talking about in the church that Jude is writing to. They're probably the ones receiving this letter and throwing it in the fire. I mean, it's like, the, it's talking about the leadership within the, the group of people that are meeting here. Certain men have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now, that phrase right there, deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord, 
is going to be important when we get into these verses right here. Because Jude is going to be talking about a reference about, say, when Enoch writes about his, when he appears, when he comes with his holy ones, talking about God. That's in the Greek Enoch text or the Aramaic Enoch text. But when Jude quotes it, he changes the ideal of he and puts Lord in there, which is just a few verses away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has full intention of when he quotes Jude, of taking Jude's words, not switching them, but giving it a personality that this person that's coming back is Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that. <clears throat> uh, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you, and now here's your Old Testament example, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he's kept in darkness, bound for everlasting chains of judgment for the great day. Uh, and it goes on, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding towns, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as examples of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So that's been, so far, there's your Old Testament. Now verse 8, he's going to give you, in the very same way, these dreamers, going back to 55 AD, or these heretics, pollute their own bodies, uh, re reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Verse 9, now we go back and give you a, a text, a sample. Uh, but the, uh, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against them, but th said, the Lord rebuke you. Now that's interesting because that's not directly out of the Bible as we talk. That's going to be from apocryphal writings like the Assumption of Moses. But it's still a Jewish text that these people are familiar with. So that's Old Testament examples. There's the assumption of Moses, but what's going to happen here, he's using that text as a foundation for his point, verse 10. Uh, yet these men speak abusively, just like what happened back here or didn't happen. These men have less respect than Michael does. Uh, yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Now, verse 11, back to the Old Testament. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now we spent, you know, three or four weeks on that verse. But then we spent some time in verse 12 and 13, which now we're, we're springing from there into our next text here. He now takes those three Old Testament examples and makes application. These men are blemishes at your love feast eating with you without the slightest qualm. Once again, they're with the people, and the people are not rejecting them. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain. And now here comes your four examples. Again, that's very descriptive. Shepherds, clouds. Uh, but okay, uh, shepherds without who feed only themselves. Now your four examples. Clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They are wild ways of the sea, foaming up their shame and wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And that now is the explanation of, or excuse me, that was the explanation of the, the previous reference of the rebellion and Cain and Korah and Balaam. Now, verse 14 and 15, you're going to get a new text. And again, we're talking, I know it's from the book of Enoch, of first Enoch, and it's like, well, what's this doing? We'll talk about it. He goes now in verse 8, in the very same way these dreamers... Excuse me, I was on this column instead of this column. Thank you for helping me. Uh, verse 14, Enoch, 
the seventh from Adam, that's, in, that's kind of a key, prophesied about these men. Now, we got to be prophesied about these men. I mean, Enoch in the ancient days was prophesying about 55 AD. We'll look at that. A prophesied about these men, and here's the quote. See the Lord, and that's a change. The word Lord being there is a change. See the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are, okay, and that's the end of the quote, okay, have spoken against him, end quote. Now verse 16, now his teaching or his comment these men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And that verse, once again, is loaded with, they're describing them, grumblers, fault finders. What's driving them? They follow their own evil desires. They're not following God. They're motivated by their own sin nature. And they speak by boasting about themselves and flattering others. For their, so they're, they're advancing themselves and flattering others. The only reason they're saying anything nice is for their own advantage to promote the boasting that they're doing. And their boasting is going to be in a comparison to God's way and God or them and their way versus God. So they're putting themselves above God, using the people to flatter them so they get power, finances, something to expand themselves. But of course, their judgment is coming. Now that is, again, the explanation. These are the verses we're looking at today. So you can kind of see how the, the book is being written so far. And now we have the notes, and uh, just point one and two at the top of page one. Again, these are going to be, you've got your English standard version, and then I've got a Greek underneath it, which sometimes we can look at. Uh, the theme introduced in Jude 4, the judgment of false teachers and shepherds, is confirmed in, in, in this verse. So he's already talked about in, in the very beginning, he's talking about the judgment that's coming on these, and he's following up with that. Verse uh, 14 develops the last point of Jude's four images, the clouds, waves, trees, and stars of verse 13. And I pointed that out when we went by it. Verse 13 talks about uh, their wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. And that just kind of leads him right into this verse, talking about the fate that's coming. And in here on page one, the English standard version that we'll be looking at this first verse of, of Jude 14 it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Uh, that continues, if you want to flip over to, it's a long ways away. The rest of that verse, wow, it's all the way over on page five. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, now you can see there's a box on page five, the Greek text box there that I've got for you. Uh, some of the things that are circled, the small circles, there's uh, two words that are used four times. For example, uh, the form of the word uh, all is in the little circle uh, four times. And you see the little circle there. And the word ungodly, or a form of the word ungodly, is going to be in the bigger loop circle. Uh, it's translated ungodly, of ungodliness, they have done in an ungodly way, and then again, ungodly. So all exclusive, four times, and they're being defined as ungodly. So that's basically the circling. Then the, two, the three squares, the two little squares, 
he's coming back to execute judgment and to convict. And we'll talk about that when we get to this verse sometime, you know, in December, hopefully before Christmas. No, hopefully the, hopefully the day. Uh, and then a very important word that sets up the next verse is the big square, uh, the harsh things, or scleron, which is a, the harsh things that are spoken, the hard, uh, aggressive things that they're speaking against God. So we'll come back to that here in a moment. Let's go back to page one. And I'm going to just read through these points so we can kind of keep moving. Enoch explained that the men like this were uh, in whatever age they live. And this is going to be one of the questions that's going to be coming up. Is, is Enoch talking, uh, is this a prophecy from, well, let's say, let's say uh, 3,500 B.C. Again, there's a thousand years of debate on, on that date. Uh, who knows? And even 55 A.D. when Jude is writing, again, you could you could be, get away by saying it's 60 70 AD 55 is what I've settled on not that that's absolute but is Enoch writing in 3500 BC in the ancient days before the flood of Noah projecting all the way up here saying aha I see in 55 AD and God's writing this has been waiting for all that time and I say that's possible but I don't think that's the issue I think Enoch is writing to his generation He's talking about the people that are living at his day, and he's prophesying to them, just like Moses was talking to his generation and all those other previous examples, you know, Balaam, Balak, go back to Cain example. But just like those are all examples for the future, all these things are written for our benefit, it's also over here. Is This example here is now applicable to this generation in 55 AD, which of course means it's applicable in 2023, uh, right now, it's going to be applicable. So when he prophesied, uh, we, we've got to look at that word a little bit. Uh, it's not like he's making a statement looking through the corridors of time and speaking, ah, I see these people. He's making a pronouncement of God's judgment. God's You've got these types of people. This is how God deals with this type of people. If it's in Enoch's day, if it's in Moses' day, if it's in Jude's day, if it's in our day, this is the result. It's like, it's like a mathematical formula. You add 2 plus 2 in Enoch's day, what do you get? 4, I think. It's before the flood. It may be slightly different. Who knows? But you got 2 plus 2 gets 4. I mean, David added 2 plus 2 apples. David had 4 apples. And we add, you know, it's, just, it's like it's, it's a formula. It's, it's the same thing. It's a principle of God. So that's kind of, I think, way we need to look at this. And again, you keep thinking, and please be... Uh, sharp on your toes. I do not want to be uh, thrown in this category of those shooting stars and false teachers that are going to be <laughs> under this judgment. So please, uh, don't drag me down. Okay. Uh, uh, point two, the quote from 1 Enoch 1.9 is the text Jude uses to confirm his last accusation, verse 13. And here is a translation uh, from the ancient times it's from a different source but it says uh enoch 1 9 behold he will arrive i underlined he will arrive because i'm going to show you the change with 10 million of holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all now, as we go through this this holy ones i want to warn you uh we're going to have a biblical precedent that when the Lord comes in a theophany on Mount Sinai or the Lord comes back eschatologically and returns, he's coming back with angelic forces. 
Now, I know the rapture crowd, the eschatological crowd, oh, that's us coming back. Now, there's also a reference of, of us returning with the Lord at other places, but I, you know, put that on the shelf. Don't, don't forget that. But Jude is not talking here, again, I think, his point, or Enoch and Jude are not referring to, oh, these are the saints coming back with the Lord. That's an issue. We can talk about that in other places. This, the focus here is these are angelic armies coming back to execute the judgment of the Lord. Uh, that's the point. So when it talks about holy ones here, and I'll give you some examples in a moment, it's consistent throughout Scripture. These are angels. Behold, he will arrive with 10 million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He'll destroy the wicked ones and censure censor all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which the sinners and wicked ones committed against him. And I point out here, one major change is right here, underlined, he will arrive. Jude changes that to the Lord comes. Instead of he will arrive, he changes that to the Lord comes. And being in the book of Jude and in the New Testament, Jude has already identified Lord as Jesus. So it's not even a stretch. Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, that is right there in the context of the book. And it's a slight change, not of the context. It's just a clear identification of who he is that's coming back. Um, I've got a point B. I've got, you can find that online there. Enoch verse one, verse nine, chapter one, verse nine. Uh, Jude is doing one of these three things when he quotes Enoch one, verse nine. He's quoting the Greek version by memory. He's using a third unknown Greek translation that we no longer have that hasn't been transferred down to us. Or he's looking at an Aramaic text, which would basically be Hebrew, but it's, we'd call it Aramaic as it's progressed. Aramaic. Uh, and he's, he's translating, making his own translation. He's reading the, the Aramaic and just writing it into Greek. So something like that's happening. Most likely it's that third one. He's probably got an Aramaic text because he's Jewish. That's what he reads. And he's writing to a Greek reading church and he's translating it into Greek as he's going. So somehow, because there's going to be other slight variations of uh, the text. Nothing changes. It's just where's his source coming from? And some people are very concerned about that. First Enoch. Uh, this was a book well-known and respected by the Jews. This is what's important about this. For us, and I think I pointed out somewhere, for us, the most controversial thing about this verse is not the content. Everything in this verse, everything in this verse is just a, a, is re repeated in Scripture. There's nothing new. There's no biblical doctrine hanging on this verse. There's no new revelation. It's all just the same thing, just combined in a different, pa different package. So the content is, we'd say, solid. What makes this verse questionable is, whoa, 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 you're quoting from the book of First Enoch? It's like, well, what are you doing? I mean, it's like, that's the controversial thing, and it goes uh, basically one of three directions. One, uh, if he's quoting from Enoch, I, I've played with this, believe me, I, I've played with this idea. If he quotes one verse from Enoch, that justifies the whole book. The whole book should be in the Bible. We should read the book of Enoch like it's biblical. Uh, that was, that's fun for a while until you get into it and you realize that's dangerous because I'm going to show you some Greek poetry Paul quotes from that's clearly not biblical. Nonetheless, the other thing is, well, he's quoting from a book that's not Scripture, the book of Jude is not supposed to be in the Bible. It's a false book. Now, this is Clement of Alexandria. 
uh, that what went that way. That was Origen's teacher. Anything about Origen, very, very liberal theologian, got into allegory, crazy, kind of set the church back, I think. But nonetheless, that's what he thought. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate in Bethlehem at the, the, the church of the Nativity, he set up a mo- monastery there. He says, he, was que- he didn't say this, but he says many in his day were questioning if Jude should even be in the Bible. And then there's Augustine, which probably has it right, uh, he says uh, the book of Enoch is not inspired, but this particular verse uh, is in some way legitimate. It's, it's captured. Via, now, that, now, now the question comes, how is this verse legitimate? Not the whole book, but this verse, has some, it's captured the ideal of God. It was something left over from Enoch way back in the day that was just handed down, which is kind of hard to prove. Uh, that, that this, this little verse is one Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy. Or it's just a verse that has a truth in it that Jude is using. So I don't think uh, it should be in the Bible. I don't think it's the book of Enoch is inspired. I don't think it nullifies the book of Jude. Otherwise, we would have already nullified it because he's talking about the assumption of the argument with Michael and Satan. It's like, where's that at? Well, that's in Jewish writings. Now leads us to this. The Jews were familiar now, the problem for us is we quote Enoch, we're like, you know, what is this? And we're stumbling all over it. For the Jews, uh, you put it in the notes, for the Jews, it would be like referring to John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us. It's like, now, if I refer, or, or White Christmas, you know, I refer to the song White Christmas. You'd say, ah, we know that. Well, everyone when who Jude is writing to, they know the book of Enoch. So he says it's just like, and he quotes a verse. They're like, okay, they're not like, well, what are we going to do with this? If I refer to John Lennon, you know how how corrupt the song Imagine was. You're like, well, are you saying? I'm just using it as an example that you're familiar with. And I think that's where we're at. He's writing a verse that captures truth that these people are familiar with. I in the Western world, a Protestant, 2023 is like oh, where are you getting this from? What is this? I'm choking on the, the reference, not the, con- the content. I agree with the content. I just, where are you getting this? Well, it doesn't make it scripture. It doesn't nullify the book of Jude. It's a truth in a verse that the Jews were familiar with that can be used today. It's the same principle today. So that's kind of the way I'm approaching this. And believe me, I, I've, I've looked at all, I've, you know, I really want to, you know, there's a time I read through it. There's some cool stuff in it. And it's not, I'm not even going to say that's the only reference in there that, that is legitimate. But it's definitely something the Jews were familiar with. And that's kind of what I'm saying at the bottom of page one. Uh, point B is interesting, 3B. First Enoch was never, it has never been considered part of Jewish scripture. Josephus didn't refer to it as scripture. It has never been accepted as scripture by the Roman Catholics, although they've got the apocryphal. It's not part of their scriptures. Uh, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Orthodox, or the Protestants. So if I were to say, well, you know, I think this is scriptural. Well, I'm out of line with the Jews. I'm out of line with the Roman Catholics. I'm out of line with the Greek Orthodox. I'm out of line with the Protestants. The only group I'm in is some fringe group somewhere that probably you don't want to know what else they believe. So that's where I, I, as I, I form, fortunately, I landed on a, in, in a group of, of large group of people, which means, of course, if everybody's saying it, it must be right. So... <laughs> Point C, the inspiration, logical, okay, this is logic question to ask, is Enoch inspired? I think I went on through all this. 
and that's where you get or origin, Jerome, that's on the top of the page. Uh, then you come down to uh, scripture introduced, uh, point D. Jude does not call First Enoch scripture or the verse scripture. He uses a different formula, and you're familiar with this. Uh, D1, Jude does not use the technical phrase, it is written. For you've seen, we go back in Jesus' ministry, and he would say, for it is written. And he maybe would quote directly or maybe paraphrase, but he's thinking it's in the law. It's scripture. You've heard it, it is written. It's, it's in scripture. Jude does not say, it, now he could say, it, because he may be reading a text. Yes, it is written. It's written right here. Well, yeah, but I'm not saying it is written as in it is written in scripture. It's written on this papyrus, but it's not, it is written technically term. So that's, he doesn't use that phrase. Instead, uh, he writes, it's, it's the next point down there. It says, Enoch prophesied about these men. All he's saying is Enoch prophesied, and I can never spell prophesied right, so I'm going to scribble. He prophesied, now, now the word prophesied, now we're talking about what does prophesied mean? Now we've got a big category on what prophecy can mean, and I want to show you a few things on this. So again, Jude, Jude is not saying this is scripture. He is saying Enoch prophesied, but he's referring to, and this is coming up also, um, some point, uh, he calls him Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And it, that's, that's true in the genealogy. You count, counting Adam is one, you count down, Enoch is number seven. And you can find that out if you count in the chronology, genealogy of, uh, of, of the generations. But in the book of Enoch, there's two places he's referred to as the seventh from Adam. It is like part of his title in the book of Enoch. So when he says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, he's potentially not talking, this is, be careful, he's not necessarily talking about the man Enoch prophesied because we have nothing written by Enoch except we've got first Enoch and different portions of things. And again, I'm not a, a textual critic. I am very much against the higher critics of the scriptures that push them off, say they were written after the time of Ezra and all this. That, that's, that's junk, that's provable, false. We're doing that on Tuesday night. But you do have to realize that the Jews did continue to write and expand on things. And the same critics can see within Enoch it kind of uh, emerging out of 200 AD, or excuse me, BC, the time of the Maccabees, that it was maybe legends or stories. It's hard to say Enoch wrote these things, Noah took them on the ark, got off the ark and handed, and they've been, because it's like, where were they? Why don't they pop up? Why are they not referred to? They just all of a sudden kind of appear. So again, I can't go into that talking about it, but the very fact that he calls him Enoch and then says the seventh from Adam, which is a title within the book, he's talking about not necessarily, I'm not, I'm, I'm not committing either way on this. He could be talking about the historical Enoch said this, and Enoch obviously said some things, but he's most likely referring to, or my point is, referring to the Enoch that is in that book of first Enoch, the seventh from Adam. It could be the writer of Enoch, it, whatever this, or it's re definitely referring to the book that he's writing, uh, referring to the book of, if that makes sense. Uh, in, in other words, where are you getting this information? I'm getting it from this book. It's almost like a title for the book. With that being said, um, we got a, oh, I know, bottom of page two here. 
uh, point E. Jude may have thought this verse in Enoch was on some level inspired by God or at least captured an absolute truth of God. Now, this is where I come down. Jude is referring to a book the Jews were familiar with. It, was, it, it, it glorified God. It spoke of the good things. Uh, it was orthodox in most ways. But what he captures in this verse is exactly what is taking place in this church in 55 AD is the false teachers. And so he goes here. I've got now some examples, which I think is interesting. And, and, and at some level, you've got to accept it. Of, of Paul quoting in letters things that aren't scripture and referring to them as if they're absolute truths. Which gives us this idea and it, it's, we, we know this from, we can have general revelation. General revelation can be seen in creation, in nature. You don't need special divine revelation to understand certain things. I would suggest falling in general revelation would be things like family. Uh, things like, oh, gender. Uh, things, and we could go through just things that you don't need to go to church to learn this justice you know be treating people fair well i've never been to church i don't know how to be ethical i've never been to church i don't know how to work for food i don't know how to get a job i've never been a, gone to church you can know family's important genders for boys and girls uh justice is crucial and you have to work to make a living and say but i don't believe in god uh, it's like these things are still true, and you can find them. Now, if you say, well, I think there is a God, but how do I get to know him? Uh, I, I, can also, I also feel guilt. How do you spell guilt? I, I feel sin. How do I redeem? How do I get right with God? Ah, now you've got special revelation, where God now is going to, through the vehicle of eventually writing, he's going to communicate this other revelation that you cannot find anywhere else but in the text of scripture you can't go off and look at the stars or, or do you know excavations and discover ah salvation is found through jesus christ you can find all these things but you got to have special revelation for that's the importance of contend for the faith you'll lose this uh we're in trouble so this is general revelation special revelation and why am i saying that oh because paul when he's addressing issues just like jude and he's addressing issues can look over here, and when you've got a problem down here in the church, you've got some kind of a problem here in the church, you can go up and say, well, okay, now, this is not what I'm referring to, but Paul does say, I've established in all the churches the principle, if a man don't work, a man don't eat. It's like, how do you get everybody to work? Well, you really don't need a Bible verse, you just don't give them any food. It's like, if you, wanna, if you want food, you gotta have a job. It's like, well, where's that in the Bible? Yeah, I suppose we could find some point, but it's like the pagans know that. It's like then the, they came to the church and we're in the church. We're rejecting these things because they're Christians. And of course, I've as my whole life, I've dabbled in that also because I I was going to now many years ago. I was going to like just dedicate my life to God and God would provide. Well, that lasted about three days, and it's like, man, I need to get a job right you live in the real world got, you can know god but you've got to function in reality okay so because of this reality because of this truth you've got paul able to 
which is really, this is very revealing on Paul as far as his education. And you know this already. It's just kind of, I'm using this to kind of set the stage for what Jude is doing with Enoch. Uh, point E, Jude may have, thought, okay, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Paul quoted two Greek poets in Athens at the Areopagus. Now he's in Athens talking to the philosophers and he doesn't go to Moses and Genesis and some you know, special revelation. He goes, well, I know how to communicate or connect with you. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Now we've even got Christian songs that do that. As even some of your own poets, and that word poets can sometimes be replaced with the word prophets because they'd be Gentile poets or Gentile prophets declaring truths to their Gentile cultures. Some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now what Paul has just done in Acts 17 in Athens at the Areopagus, talking to the philosophers is he's quoted Epimenides and he's going to do that in Titus again and Eretus and the name of the poems we know, the point A underneath there. Epimenides is quoted by Paul two times from Epimenides' long poem called Cretitia. Now again, I may be pronouncing that wrong, probably pronouncing that wrong, where Epimenides refers to the Cretans claiming that Zeus was mortal, but Epimenides considered Zeus to be immortal, so he had the min minnows address Zeus as saying in his poem. Okay, we can't go defer down this line. In fact, some of you probably walk out of here it's like, what, he's teaching pagan philosophy? What is he doing? But this, this poet, Menides, thought Zeus was immortal, but the Cretans, he was mocking them, they rejected him. So Menides is going to say Zeus is immortal. The Cretans think they're going to bury him. And so right out of here, here is the quote. Again, now why are we reading this? I'm showing you this. We're not going to, you know, build an altar or anything. Uh, but Paul, this is where Paul, Paul quotes this verse to the Arabic. He takes this verse out of this poem and quotes it. Says, ah, yeah, we're on the same page here. We, we, got a, we got a connecting point. And here's the quote Epimenides wrote. They fashioned a tomb for you, talking to Zeus, holy and high one. This is Menides praising Zeus. They, they, these guys fashioned a tomb for you. They made a tomb for you, Zeus. Now again, get, get the year. This is somewhere between 315 and 240 B.C. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Menides, they, they, they formed a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, he says, are always liars, evil beasts, and idle bellies. He says, these Cretans... They made a tomb for you. They're lazy. They're idle. They're, 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 they're evil. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. So Menides is saying, Zeus, you live forever. To the fact, we, we live and move in you, Zeus. He says, but these Cretans, they're liars. They're lazy. They're evil brutes. They never tell the truth. And they're making fun of you, Zeus. Okay, you got that idea? The poem goes on and on. You want to keep going? I'd have to look it up. I don't know anymore. The point there is he quotes Menides by saying, yet he is actually not far from each. He says, okay, you guys are close. He's not far from us. In fact, you know, we live and move and have our being in God. They're like, yes, yes. It's like, okay, now 
Now that we're on the same, now he's going he's to keep, cre- and eventually he, get, he does lead someone to the Lord during that time. So he eventually leads to the point of resurrection from the dead. And they're like, whoa, no, no, we can't go there. Right, because this is general revelation. And so he took him to special revelation. I go, whoa, we're choking on this special. He goes, and one guy says, yeah, you know, I, 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 I believe that. But anyway, we're not done. I can, I'm going to give you some more. Uh, point B, the uh, other one, for we are also his offspring, is er- the point B on page three. Eratus writes in his poem, Phanomena, uh, in verses one through nine. I, I'll read it to you quickly. From Zeus, let us begin. Him do we mortals never leave unnamed. Full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Full is the sea and the heavens thereof. Always we all have need of Zeus. For we are also his offspring. And he in this, his kindness unto men, give favor, signs, goes on and on. Talks like that. I'm afraid someone's going to cut this out and make me sound like I'm preaching Zeus. Uh, But anyway, that's that. And that, you can see over there, where's that come from? I got a date on Aratus. Uh, Somewhere I do. Yeah, 315 to 240 B.C. And those are two poets Paul quotes from on the Arabian. Now again, he quotes by memory. He doesn't Google it. And you don't know how I knew these? I Googled it, okay? Paul doesn't Google. He's on Mars Hill, called up in, in, this, in front of the philosophers, and he's like, hmm. He's Googling right here. He's got it here. And he, and he pulls verses. I can't do this with the Bible sometimes. It's like, where's that verse? It's like, I'll Google it. And here's a reference, I, and then I read it. Paul up there, and he's not just going through the Old Testament. And I say, where is that in Daniel? Where's that? He's like, hmm, he's, he's, he's searching the Greek poets for some way of contact with these philosophers, which is fairly, now that's not giving any credence to it, but he does do that, and he does it again. Um, turning to, where am I at here? Oh, yeah, I'm on page three. First Corinthians, I, I'll give you this one, and we've got to keep moving on. First Corinthians 15, 33. He says, do not be deceived, quote, bad company ruins good morals. Now, this is from Menander's comedy, uh, Theus, however you say that, uh, wrote 341 to 290 B.C., was a Greek writer who wrote 108 comedies. This comedy, Theus, is the name of a prostitute or an entertainer, uh, conversationalist that traveled with Alexander the Great on his conquest. And she was the one, when they conquered Persepolis, that convinced him, let's torch the palace. So Alexander, instead of saving the city, because of this woman that was with him, set fire to the palace. And here it is right here. Loose bridled, pest, methinks thought I have suffered this, that none the less I'd now be glad to have her. Sing to me, goddess, sing of such an one as she, what audacious, beautiful, plausible, withal, uh, she does you wrongs, she locks her door, keeps asking you for gifts. She loveth none, but ever maketh pretense. Communion with the bad corrupts good character. And so Paul was a somewhat familiar with that writing that comes out of 340, let's say 300 B.C. And says, the same thing is true today. And again, he's in Corinth, the seat of the Greeks, and he's quoting their poetry to him. says, listen, it was true in Alexander's day. It's true in the Greek comedies. It's true in your church. You bring in bad character, it's going to corrupt you. Get rid of these people. So, I mean, he's, he's quoting John Lennon and Bing Crosby and, you know, you know what I'm saying. Not because 
he's embracing pagan mythology, but it's like they've stumbled, they've, they've recognized, listen, you get bad people with good people, these ba- good people are going to start acting like the bad people. Get rid of the bad people. It's like, oh, I should have gone to Sunday school. You don't need to go to Sunday school. You can just go to a kindergarten class and figure that out. Okay. And then Titus 1, 11 through 13, that's where he says, uh, this is him, this is Paul writing to Titus. Now, he's not writing to the Corinthians or some fallen church. He's writing to his man on the streets in Crete. And he says, listen, you've got to settle these guys. We've got a church there, but these Cretans, you know these Cretans. He says, they must, the, the false teachers among them, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Now, again, those whole families may be, again, churches meeting in the houses because again they didn't have church buildings the families would have churches within their families and these false teachers are coming in corrupting the whole families again that's what it says you can think about that uh families by teaching for shameful gain that they ought not what they ought not to teach one of the cretians a prophet of their own said and this is epimenides epimenides Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So he quotes from this guy twice. And now he's not trying to communicate on some level with the pagans. He's writing to a fellow apostle, if you want to call Titus an apostle or work with the apostles. He says, listen, this, they even know they've got a problem. This testimony is true. This, this poet was true when he identified the nature of these people on the island of Crete 300 years ago. They're still lazy brutes and liars. And now they're coming into your church shut them up and that, that's what the word they said this is nice in the english they must be silenced it, it means shut them up i mean it, it's like well that's harsh okay well paul and pa- titus were contending for the faith uh therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith okay nonetheless that is just an example nothing to do with today except taking this this pagan poets that have stumbled upon truth and paul refers and puts it in scripture uses as as an example jude has the book of enoch it doesn't need to be scripture these guys weren't but he has made a statement that is solid that applies it's the fourth text of the fourth comment he's going to make that applies to his situation 55 ad and he's using something familiar to him just like the corinthians were familiar with the greek writers you're familiar with white christmas the jews were familiar with enoch when i say white christmas i'm saying bing crosby song i i, I try to think of some examples before class and i got john lennon and bing Crosby. in fact i googled I Google popular songs in the United I, t- popular songs in America, and guess what I got? Been through the desert with a horse with no name, all America's hits. So I thought, oh, big hits in the United States. Trying to, and then that's when I already knew John Lennon's. Imagine they said Bing Crosby. Okay, nonetheless. Uh, point four: Jews and the people of his generation had the Book of First Enoch. Uh, Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, had many copies of the, of the book of Enoch. Uh, and again, I point that whole, yeah, then that, that's your, there you go, point 4B. There, you're talking about White Christmas and John Lennon. All right. Prophesied. Uh, here's the breakdown of the word. Enoch prophesied. Here's four breakdowns. The verb prophecy, used in scriptures, identified in the previous record. For example, Matthew 15, 7, you hypocrites, Jesus says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said... Now, again, think about Isaiah. 
Isaiah was speaking to his generation, but yet Jesus is saying Isaiah was in the heat of you know, Hezekiah and the Assyrians in 701 BC. He's like, wait, I've got a prophecy for 30 AD. It's like, that could be. Or what was going on in Jerusalem in 700, 701 BC was going on in 30 AD. And Jesus says, what Isaiah said to his people, <laughs> he was speaking about you the same way. He prophesied very well. He nailed it. It's, it's the same way. And that's where I'm going to go. He's not making a direct prophecy about these people. He's making a statement of truth about his generation that probably occurs constantly throughout history. Again, that's the way I'm looking at this. I could make some correction. 1 Peter 1.10 Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched uh, and inquired carefully. Again, that's just an example of the prophets who prophesied in the Old Testament. They were looking, trying to figure out, and they couldn't because it wasn't revealed yet, what was Jesus was going to do. And now Peter and us are living in a time where it's been revealed. It's, like I said, the, the prophets would long to have looked into these things, to see the things. The angels even long to look into them. That's, so that's one, to prophesying uh, the same word is used of utterance or sayings from God that is spoken unknowingly by a man not following God's plan, as does John when he speaks of Caiaphas. So in other words, you can be talking about one thing and utter something, and it's like, exactly, and it fits. God says, that, that, well, here it is. But one of them, now remember Caiaphas, he's the high priest that tried Jesus. They found his sarcophagus, we've talked about that. Uh, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, and this is his political logic, we have to kill Jesus because if he can, gets the crowd worked up, the Romans will come in and crush us. The Romans will defeat us. We, we, we can't have a revolt. And the people are looking for a king, a messiah. They'll go to war with Rome. So we've got to kill Jesus. Now the thing is, 40 years later, they did that very thing. They found a messiah, led a revolt against Rome, and Rome crushed him. But Caiaphas knows we can't defeat Rome. And Jesus is going to give these people the impression, because he's entirely missing the message, that they can revolt against Rome. So he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You don't understand, it's better we risk our lives and kill this one man, that the whole nation be saved, than risk the whole nation perishing. And John's like, exactly <laughs> that's that's it he says uh, uh he did not say this on his own accord but being high priest that year and high priests would prophesy they, they had to understand they were especially endowed with the spirit at a certain level but being high priest that year he prophesied that jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of god who were scattered abroad so there's kind of a broad understanding of that. And it's very interesting to see John pick up on that. And now John's writing 85 AD, 90 AD, which means Jerusalem has already fallen in 70 AD when he's putting this together. So, and then three, uh, point C, prophecy can happen when the Spirit speaks through a person, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, you can see other places. And then prophecy can occur but not be recorded in Scripture. Things have been prophesied that aren't recorded anywhere. And so those are some ideas of looking at this. So when he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, about these people. Uh, the prophecy, point six, the prophecy Enoch quoted by Jude does not reveal any new information. This is important. It's no new information, and there are no biblical doctrines hanging on this. He's just capturing 
it's more of a moral lesson. It's more of a moral standard. How, how do we evaluate false teachers? Look at what Enoch said about false teachers, or the book of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, said it's the same thing we're looking at here. Uh, the point of this title, instead of, okay, oh, yeah. Uh, the informa- our information comes from Genesis 5. The point of this title, instead of the biblical name, the seventh from Adam, is Enoch, and I've got the two references there, Enoch 60, verse 8, Enoch 93, 3, and I've got it underlined where it says the seventh, that's from the same book. Holy ones uh, refers to angels, I was saying that, and you got that in Matthew 25, Mark 8, you know, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, uh, Mark, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, uh, Luke, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, and same thing, of the holy angels. First uh, Thessalonians 3.13 is uh, a, a challenge because it says in the English Standard Version, uh, NIVs uh, is different, but he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with, English Standard, all his saints which makes it sound like when he comes back with the people coming out of heaven with him. That's, that's, that's biblically true. But the word that they're translating, all his saints, is hagion, which would be holy ones, which could be holy people, or the same thing in all the other verses, the holy angels. I'm not making a decision. NIV, I think, leans towards the angels. English Standard just has it saints, which we think of as people. We don't think of angels as saints. So it's almost... They're translating it a different way. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. I've got verses 6 through 10 written. Since indeed God considers it just just to repay. Again, this is an important verse because it kind of captures exactly what Enoch is saying. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who believe, have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's a great line right there. When he comes that day to be glorified in his saints where the sons of god will be revealed and then right here and to be this is what this is what we'll be doing to be marveled at among all who have believed i mean we know jesus we trust jesus we look forward to jesus but when jesus comes we will marvel at him i mean it's like okay we're going to worship we're going to sing we're going to rejoice uh this is we're just going to be like we're just mar it's like I thought it was going to be cool. I thought it was going to be big. I thought it's like, we can't, I mean, it's beyond right now. In fact, uh, it's possible we could even process it today. We, uh, we could not process until we are glorified and glorified bodies, and now we can process it. We saw it today, well, we melt. I mean, I don't know, Indiana Jones style. You know, okay, too many references to the secular world. Okay. Okay, so that, that's where we're at right here. I'm going to read that verse again because we just talked about it. I'm going back to page one. Don't be scared. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now I'm on page five. And the reason he's coming with ten thousand of his holy ones 
is to execute judgment. Again, he said Lord, so he means Jesus. In the context, Jesus is coming with his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that have been committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken. Uh, now, again, what time is it getting to be? Okay, execute we're going to pick this up next week, it looks like. Execute judgment and to convict. Now, there's a place, a way I could rush through this. That's the, when he comes back, he's going to execute judgment and convict. And he's executing judgment and convicting on these two things. Deeds and words. And the, well, this is key for Jude right here because the people in the, the false shepherds are misleading the people with their words. And then they're committing deeds to manipulate and gain power. They're shepherds who only feed themselves. So they're using words in the next verse, 16, to flatter the people as they boast about themselves. And they're flattering the people to get some kind of power, some resources, some possession, something from them. And their deeds will take them and exploit the people. And so this is coming. And there's, there's, this is no hope. There's, there's hope in conviction. If you're convicted by the Holy Spirit today as a believer, there's hope because you can, I, you can evaluate yourself, compare yourself to the light, walk in the light, as he is in the light, confess your sin, and, and return to the Lord. So conviction is good. We want conviction, but we want to respond to conviction. It's different here. This right here, when he returns, he's not coming back to convict them. Conviction is, in a sense, I, I'll give you a better definition in the, on the paper, expose sin or reveal sin. And conviction can come, and, and you've all experienced, uh, you've, you've done something, you've said something, you've got a practice of something, and, and it's exposed to you. And, and you now, you, you're, you're sin, you, you feel, and you know as a Christian, special revelation, confess your sin, he's faithful and, and just, and will uh, forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness you're back in the light so this conviction is healthy it's necessary it's almost like a daily thing daily confess your sins examine yourselves in light of the word of god so this is part of the christian life it's exposing sin and then we confess it and move on we grow through it i mean we got it's got to be i mean because right now if i say okay i've got all my sin taken care of i'm walking with the lord and god says well hey come up one more step okay Oh my gosh, what a mess. I got to start all over again. Now you've experienced, that's called spiritual growth. It's like, so, so, if you're like, I think I got this figured out. Why don't you read another verse? Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to know anymore. This, this is good. That's why the once saved, always saved, and which I agree with. But it's just, you know, accept Jesus Christ, Lord, and save me. You're saved. I am. Okay, well, good. Don't go back to church. It's just like you're saved. And you can live forever, happily ever after. But there's no spiritual growth. Okay. When this takes place for these guys, this exposed sin is his coming back in judgment and exposing their sin so it, it's, it's there and judgment. It, it, this is hopeless. And it, that's where we're at right here. And so execute judgment and convict. Bottom of page five. And these are the first two little boxes there. You can see the words. Uh, this is the role of God is, is to execute judgment. And this is an ex eschatological promise throughout the Old Testament that God is going to, or now we got the revelation of Jesus, Jesus is going to be coming back. And Jesus even said so. When I sit on my throne, and, or the Son of Man sits on his throne in, in glory, he'll judge the nations. He's coming back in judgment. And that is going to be conviction. 
And they think they're boasting. These false teachers are boasting. They've got people supporting them. They're off on their own. They're separated from the truth. So they're, they're speaking boastful things against God. They're over here thinking, hey, I'm winning this game. It's like they will not come to God. But when God comes back, he tears this current down and exposes them, and it's too late. So these, these people, the, the words are coming up, talk about the words. They're, they're boastful. They're, they're arrogant words that they're speaking, and they're speaking them against God. Now, we can see this in uh, 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 Enoch's day. You can see this in, in 55 AD or whenever. But, you know, you also examine yourself. But you can see people like this today in our culture. But this, you know, you look at, again, name Hollywood, you know, whatever. But they're talking about people in the church. So if there's people in the church in 55 AD, is this, this, the war, the, this warning is to churches. It's not, it's not like if you go down into this part of town and this part of the, the media, whatever, you're going to find this kind of corrupt. It's like, no, I'm talking about right here, teaching, leading the people are shepherds that are only feeding them their, their selves. When Jesus comes back, he's going to execute judgment and reveal their sin, and there's no coming back. They're done. They're, in fact, even as, even as Judas writing this, it would appear there's no coming back for these people. It's like, it's like they've gone over a line. It's not like you need to sit down and confront these people and get a, you know, bring, bring the board of the elder directors to come and sit down and confront these people with their sin. It's none of that. It's like, no, just no. It's over for them. They've gone too far. And I'm just reading the text. There's no advice on three ways of bringing these people back to the Lord. It's like, no, just duck because they're going to get smoked. Okay. Uh, and that is really the judgment. The point B, Jesus will come to convict. Convict means to show someone their sin and call them to change. But here there's no hope. I turn the page. This conviction or rebuke is now no longer instructive. It is no longer leading to repentance. It's no longer educated. This is not an instructional educational conviction. This is an exposing of why I'm sending you into outer darkness because of this. You thought you're going to get away with it and you're gone. It's like, but you, I, I understand my mistake. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And you're gone. You should have understood it before. Uh, this conviction is the seal of hopelessness. The truth of their evil will be exposed, but there's no hope of redemption. And then again, at point two, there's two words are used four times, all in ungodly. We've mentioned that. And then this is where we're going to have to wrap up. The wicked are judged for two things, their deeds, which are the theme of chapter or verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 11 was focused on their deeds. They've taken the way of Cain. They've, they've gone into Korah's rebellion. They've tried to get gain like Balaam. These are their deeds. We're now switching here to their words. We've already, the earlier part was deeds, but now he's going to focus on their words. And the, the word right here uh, is uh, skelron, skelron which means hard, rough. They're hard, rough words. Uh, means hard, violent, harsh, stern. And again, it comes right out of Enoch. First Enoch, I've got three references there. Uh, Enoch uh, 5, 4, 101, 3. Boy, I'm glad we don't have too many books with 101 chapters in it. And Enoch 27. And here it says, uh, he used the word harsh words exactly. Skelros logos. And then in Enoch 101, 3, you utter bold and hard words. And Megala, Megala, which means uh, bold, and or Kaya means and, and then Sclera, which means the hard, same thing, uh, bold and hard words against his righteousness. See, they're speaking it against God's right. Imagine God's righteous standards, if it be, you know, from the holiness 
uh, down to the, the work of Jesus Christ, down to just the way he established nature, just natural order. That is God's righteousness, God's holiness. They speak against us and want to change all of it. Just imagine people that, you can think of people today who are uttering bold and hard words against his righteousness. Not just, you know, yeah, even against his right, saying God is wrong. God should do this way. God should do what I want instead of me doing what God wants. If I, how about this? If I was God, here's what I would do. And it's like God's not doing that, so he's not, and they're speaking against his righteousness. So these are the, these are the bold words. And that's Enoch. That's out of Enoch 101. Enoch 27 2 where judgment is pronounced against those who speak with their mouth unbecoming words against the Lord and utter hard words, the same thing, concerning his glory. So it's interesting, Jude is picking up on these, these accusations that, you, that Jude referred to, but you go back, or that Enoch referred to, you can go back to the book of Enoch, and he's also addressing it in, in, those, in those writings. So it's like there's a connection there. And we'll pick this up next week when we're talking about those words, and then with the next thing, again, I, I know this is scary stuff and I keep talking. Uh, verse 16 is going to begin, these are grumblers and malcontents. That's going to be two more points on these, these hard words. They come out in two ways, grumblers, fault finders, and grumblers. And we'll talk about that. You can read ahead if you want to, of course. Uh, following their own desires and... Uh, and they're using two words against people. They're going to be using words to boast about themselves and flatter other people. So this whole thing, 15 through 16, is all now about their words, which, again, was, you know, I was reading that, you know, studying it, but I was also, like, looking at Galen. It's like, hmm, hmm, let's not go too deep with <laughs> because it's like, you know, I, you know you, we all have that tendency, and it's like, am I you know, the grumble. Again, there's going to be a fine line between grumblers and fault finders because you say, well, you shouldn't be talking negative and just say positive as Christians. Like, have you read the New Testament? What's positive about this letter? What's positive about Paul? I mean, Paul's like, you know, Jesus, you hypocrites. It's like, I mean, Jesus was a big fault finder. It's like, so there's a tendency, or even Job. Job was, uh, you know, going to God and grumbling and complaining, but he did not sin. It's like, He's got a real bad attitude. Well, no, but he's a guy saying, I, I don't understand this. This, in my, you know, there's a place of understanding. It's like a child saying, I don't understand this algebra, or I don't understand God's justice. If I was God, I would, what is going on here? And God is eventually going to lead him to the truth. So there's, a, there's that fine line of being a grumbler and a fault finder, then being someone who's dealing with life, and even going to God and asking questions, why is it like this? And, uh, you know, not, not challenging God, but going to God for answers. I'll pray, and we're done. Father, I do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that you would guide us and, and let the Spirit reveal to us our, in our own hearts the ways that we can improve and grow. We do ask that we would say the things that are, are positive and useful, that help us grow and help others grow, and that we'd live a life that is pleasing to you and is a light to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here.